In my younger and more vulnerable years, my father gave me some advice that I've been turning over in my mind ever since. by my precepts, at least by my example, how dangerous is the acquirement of knowledge, and how much happier that man is who believes his native town to be the world than he who aspires to become greater than his nature will allow. Welcome to Frankenstein. Alive! It's alive! It's alive! Okay, welcome back, listeners, uh, to Spearing the Classics with your host, Paul C.K. Spears. I am returning to you after a bit of a snafu with my April Fool's episode. You guys might have noticed I put it up and then had to take it down again. It turned out the rough cuts on it were just a bit too rough, uh, so we're not going to be publishing that one. I may end up um, re-recording it later, so I might just do it over again, um, because as much of a jerk as H.P. Lovecraft was... Mountains of Madness, the thing I was going to do the April podcast on, is very, very important to me as far as like the horror genre. So well, we may get back to that, uh, but for now we have a much bigger target in our sights because this time, and I'm, I'm sorry to do this to you guys, but this is going to have to be a two-parter because there's just too much to cover. We are going for one of the big ones, uh, one of the biggest ones that there is in terms of literature and in terms of, um, of, of Western literature, quote-unquote. Uh, but so we're going to be going after Mary Shelley's Frankenstein today, and I cannot overstate to you how excited I am. <laughs> I have loved this book since forever. I didn't read it properly until I was like probably in college, um, but I just, this is one of my most favorite books of all time, if not very close to my favorite book of all time, not just for the contents of the book, which we're going to get into, but in the story behind it, the story of the creation of the book, and the story of uh, Mary Shelley's entire life, because she was, her life was crazy. I I can hardly even get into it without diving too deep, because Mary Shelley's life was just this hot mess of macabre, sad things that happened to her, and on top of that, she had to deal with an extremely emotional poet for a husband, Percy Shelley, who was, by all accounts, kind of nuts, and his good buddy, Lord Byron, who everyone knows from the, the famous quote, uh, mad, bad, and dangerous to know, he was also a poet of that time, of the early 1800s, and he just was stomping all over her life as well. She she had a constant train of misfortunes, Mary Shelley, pretty much since she was a kid. Um, that's going to be part two. Part one is going to be the book itself, because that's, you know, that's what we want to want to go for here at Spearing the Classics. We want to give you the the deets, uh, possibly not a Cliff Notes version, because I always thought Cliff Notes was kind of cheating, uh, but the, the highlights of the actual book Frankenstein, A Modern Prometheus, and what it means, and where it came from, and maybe some stuff you might not know about it. So, so let's get into it. <laughs> this is going to take a little bit, so just bear with me. The novel Frankenstein, subtitled A Modern Prometheus, was written by Mary Shelley. Mary Shelley is the daughter of Mary Wollstonecraft, who was a sort of credited as, as the first feminist. Um, she had some 
really, really amazing quotes and, and just so much work that she put out. Um, vindication of the Rights of Woman, which was a response to, I believe, Thomas Paine's Vindication of the Rights of Man. So it was basically just a diss track on Thomas Paine, which is great. <laughs> um, Mary Wollstonecraft was the OG feminist. Uh, she once said that men, at least men in her time, um, thought of women uh, as, as a baby thinks of a rattle, um, to, to pick them up and shake them to see if they amuse them and then to put them down again, uh, which is just sad, but also, like, for her time, very, very accurate. Uh, Mary Wollstonecraft was working around the time of the American Revolution. Uh, her writings, you know, came out around that time in the turn of the, um, of the 19th century, around 1800. Uh, so she was deep into the political scene there, um, but she was brought down by, she died due to complications of childbirth, from having Mary, uh, her daughter. So she had an issue with the placenta when Mary was born. Um, there was a piece of the placenta that was still, and I'm, we're gonna we're gonna put a little little warning here because one of the reasons I love it and it's it's valuable is Frankenstein. The book itself is kind of gross, but that came from a certain place in Mary Shelley's mind, and that place was the fact that Mary Shelley's life was also terrifying and gross and very very full of just horrific things that happened to her and everyone around her. So we're going to get gross with this one. And I would ask my listeners who maybe aren't interested in hearing the gory details to, to skip this one because we're going to get real in the weeds with the nasty, gruesome details of all these people's lives and the, the gruesome details of the book. So if you don't like that, you know, feel free to tune out. I totally understand. Um, I promise that the, uh, <laughs> the next few things we're covering are maybe a little less gross, uh, but hey, we'll see. Uh, so Mary... Shelley was born. Her mother died um, during childbirth due to the placenta complication. The doctor who was there, first they didn't have a doctor. Um, they had a midwife there, and eventually the midwife was like, all right, this is a serious medical complication. They need to get the doctor. Got the doctor. The doctor came, um, misdiagnosed her, thought the whole placenta was removed. Long story short, um, Mary Wollstonecraft died due to someone else's incompetence, due to a, a uh, member of high society, um, you know, being an incompetent fuckwit. So, that theme is going to repeat in Mary Shelley's life, <laughs> so just, you know, brace yourself for more of that, because uh, it's coming. So we get into Mary Shelley's life um, in a wonderful, wonderful biography I picked up for this, uh, for this particular set of episodes. The biography is called The Lady and Her Monsters, and uh, it, is by, it is by Roseanne Montillo, uh, and she has taken a deep dive into Mary's life pretty much every single step of it and everything involved in the creation of the uh, of the book so far that I would say it's probably one of the best biographies I've, I've ever read. I would highly, highly recommend it. Um, there's just so much detail in there and so much scandal, like stuff that was reality but maybe hadn't been reported on in addition to the stuff that had been reported on and wasn't reality, all the gossip and shit. Um, so it, everything's in there. Absolutely everything about Mary Shelley's life. Um, even it goes, it starts uh, way, way, way in the beginning with the experiments of Galvani on frogs. Um, so there was, there's just so much detail in this biography. Highly, highly recommended. If you can pick it up, um, please do so. Uh, I also believe I found out in the um, the afterward that uh, the author um, graduated from Emerson College. I might be wrong, um, but she graduated from Emerson College, which is also my alma mater. So hey, congrats. Um, and I'm pretty sure this book is also connected because it's, I believe, from the mid-thousands. 
Um, it's also connected to the um, course I had in, in college on Frankenstein, um, taught by the awesome Roy Kamada over at Emerson. So that's, that's what originally sparked my real interest in this story. I've always been interested in the story of, of Frankenstein because it's, you know, it's, it's essentially science fiction. It's essentially like a touchstone of science fiction. But that's kind of how we view it from the present day lens. In reality, what Frankenstein is, is it's a gothic. Uh, and gothic is a genre that was very, very popular around Mary Shelley's time. Gothic is characterized by, uh, I would say, a lot of maudlin emotions, a lot of really dark scenery and dark. It, it's all very gloomy. Like you could say maybe the turning of the screw is a gothic, that one about the ghosts. Um, you can say that Wuthering Heights is a gothic. You can definitely say Jane Eyre is a gothic. Um, it is. It doesn't fit in any other category, as far as I know. Um, so th- all those stories have this gigantic shadow of, of sinister evil and, and intent over them. They all start with these very monumental, um, like, craggy heaths and moors and mists and, you know, big old houses and all sorts of... It's essentially... Um, a big budget uh, ghost story is what a gothic is. It's it's a lot of fun. Um, the genre itself, it's hard to find real good examples of it these days. But anyway, um, so Mary Shelley began her life pretty much in the care of her father, William Godwin, who was by all accounts a terrible dad. Um, he referred to his daughters as um, these poor, mischievous creatures that have been left to me. Like he was a typical, you know, around... He was a late 1700s man who, like, knew nothing about raising children, knew nothing about, like, any of that, because at that time, that was, quote-unquote, the woman's role. Men didn't even consider that they should be involved in it, which is bizarre. Um, So if we look back at Mary's uh, early life, her early life was shaped by that tragedy of losing her mother. There's even, um, I found a detail that states that her mother had to have dogs um, suck the, the milk from her because she was lactating, like, because the baby had been born, but, like, couldn't... The, the baby could not uh, feed on Mary Wollstonecraft's milk because they were worried it was tainted by whatever, you know, whatever was killing her at the time of childbirth. So this incident was described to Mary Shelley at a very young age, and really the, the story of Mary Shelley and the story of Frankenstein is that Mary Shelley seems to me to just be a profoundly traumatized person, like, on every level. And we'll get into that more in episode two, but, like, bear in mind when we discuss the story, this is written by a person who's been gaslighted for many years. Her husband, uh, Percy Shelley, is a laudanum addict. Laudanum is a type of um, liquid opium that could be taken. Um, Her husband's best friend is a womanizing, very sexually aggressive uh, man named Lord Byron, who everyone knew and was scandalized by, and even being around him sort of ruined her life in terms of her reputation. So everything, all these things spinning around her contributed to the creation of the story. Um, and this includes the, the local history. So um, getting into the book, right before Frankenstein was published, say from 1770 to like 1810, uh, and even prior to that point, because uh, Galvani's experiments, I believe, were in like the late 1600s or so, um, Galvani was a man in Italy who would uh, hook frogs up to um, conductive materials and get some electricity going either through lightning or later on they would use batteries for these types of experiments and, um, you know, zap them with electricity and the frogs would move. They were alive, but they weren't really alive. Um, they had just been hit with electricity, which was stimulating their, um, their neural systems, even though they were dead. Um, so this sort of very very slapstick almost bit-by-bit progress of elimination science 
was still very new. The Renaissance had wrapped up, um, and we were progressing into the Industrial Revolution a little bit in the end of the 1700s. So you see this, this world in which science is not really a complete discipline yet, right? People are still using leeches. People are still using all sorts of very antiquated things. Uh, bloodletting is still a thing. Uh, I don't believe they, they thought of the humors as being a real thing anymore. The humors are an outdated concept that there are four fluids in the body. The long and short of the uh, experiments in that period is that they very quickly discovered that you could do this not just to frogs, but to dead human beings. And that is where the shit show began, because if you can imagine back in like 17, you know, 1780, 1790, there's no TV, there's no radio, there's no form of entertainment other than what you see with your own two eyeballs. So, you know, you'll go to a play, you'll take in a show, whatever. Now, the experiments of Galvani um, led to another man named Aldini sort of picking it up and running with it, and he would take, at first, um, cattle, like the heads of cattle, and electrocute those, and the eyes would bug out, and the tongue would roll out, and all the audience would freak out, and this was all like a very profitable venture for the scientists, because people would show up at these things, at these like public electrocution displays, and basically just like throw money at them to see terrifying shit happen. Um, many people fainted. Uh, there was one incident in London where a beetle, who was a local cop, um, who was, I believe, secretly dealing bodies to the doctors who were doing the electrocutions, uh, he died of fright uh, the night after one of the criminals was electrocuted because the, the eyes opened and he thought that they looked at him, like him specifically, so he just died of fright. Um, so that's the background into which Mary Shelley sort of falls uh, into the creation of this story. Um, and we'll just jump right into it. We'll get into the details in, in uh, episode two about how the, the book really started and all that, because it's a gigantic story all on its own. Um, but Mary is astonishingly skillful for someone who, like, this was her first real book, quote-unquote. Like, I'm sure she'd written before this. Percy Shelley was a poet and her husband, and they often spoke of poetry. They often, and she had other writings um, that are out there. I haven't looked at them specifically. I might have to, because I'm really curious now. Uh, so she wrote this story while they were on vacation um, at Geneva Lake. Uh, and this was right after a volcano had gone off on the other side of the world, causing essentially a mini ice age um, and very weird climate phenomenon all across the planet. Uh, people were not aware at this time that the volcano eruption had caused a sort of cooling of the atmosphere temporarily. Um, they, they didn't realize that this was something that, you know, the butterfly effect on the other side of the world and the Ring of Fire at the Pacific, the volcano went off and the soot went into the air and all this, and the atmospheric composition changed, and suddenly, like a year later, you have farmers in New England and England uh, losing all their crops because the winter is lasting so long, it's still so cold, it's still so dark and dismal, and this is something that they just don't understand. They attribute it to, you know, fate or God or what have you, um, but meanwhile, there was a real reason for this. And this also affected Mary Shelley's um, vacation in Geneva, which is a weird sort of destiny thing because if it hadn't been so gray and gloomy, people seem to say um, she wouldn't. they wouldn't have done the ghost story contest that was allegedly suggested by Lord Byron. Um, so Lord Byron suggested that they all write some sort of ghost story. Uh, it's not clear to me from the biography whether Mary finished her story at the time of um, at the time of the vacation. I don't think she finished it at the time she was there uh, because the biography states she continued writing after she got home to England. So Frankenstein was a long project. It wasn't written in a couple days like um, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde was written in a few days. Uh, Robert Louis Stevenson burned that copy and then rewrote it again because he was very passionate about the idea. 
But Frankenstein came out over a long period of time, and you can see this immediately in the book, because um, the framing device for the book is a very popular one at the time. It's called epistolary uh, novels, which were essentially just novels written in the form of letters. Like, the framing device for the story is, Dear so-and-so, how are you? This is so-and-so. A weird thing happened to me today. And, like, it goes on and on and on. We had, there were so many of these back in the day. Um, you had Count of Monte Cristo, which is kind of epistolary, and then it appeared in, in several issues. You had Dracula near the end of the 19th century by Bram Stoker, which was also epistolary. Um, so it was a very long-lasting, very popular sort of um, sort of format, which makes sense because it, it really brings you into the story. Uh, so we get right into the story, and um, we get right into the details of the person telling the story who is an explorer in the Arctic. His name is Walton. And Walton is, by all accounts, just a young a very privileged young person. Like, we're going to get into privilege really deep in um, Frankenstein because it affects so many of the characters and it affects the author. Um, she was affected by, by her own privilege and the privilege of others, and the way these interplayed produced a certain result in the story. So, Walton is up in the Arctic, uh, basically exploring. He's on an exploratory mission. Uh, he just seems to be sort of passionate about um, exploration at this time. You know, the poles were mostly unexplored. Um, so this was still something that people wanted to do and, and find out what was up there, probably find a passageway to initiate more trade. I'm not sure what the geopolitical situation was at that exact time. Uh, but so Walton is up there uh, in the Arctic, and he's writing to his sister, and he's talking about how, oh, none of the other people on the boat understand me because I'm an intellectual. And this is something that will come back again and again and again, and you will get sick of it because uh, Mary Shelley loves her intellectuals, as did everyone, you know, in the upper class at the time who, you know, considered themselves an intellectual. Uh, it was this big worshipping of the romantic sensibilities of the mind, uh, and that plays out in Victor Frankenstein's character later. Uh, so let's look at what uh, Walton found in the Arctic. Good God, Margaret, if you had seen the man who thus capitulated for his safety, your surprise would have been boundless. His limbs were nearly frozen and his body dreadfully emaciated by fatigue and suffering. I never saw a man in so wretched a condition. And that's a little clip for you um, from an audiobook version. Uh, I'm very interested in the intro to Victor Frankenstein himself because when he shows up, uh, he's described as being starved and miserable. He floats up to Walton's ship basically on a chunk of ice uh, where he's got uh, a dog sled and several dead dogs. Like his whole little expedition, Victor Frankenstein's expedition, whatever it might be, is clearly in trouble. So they bring him on board. They warm him up. Um, they, they help him recover. And immediately Walton takes to him in a very intimate way. And this is where we're going to look at sort of the concept of, of brotherhood uh, in, in Mary Shelley's time. So the concept of friendship between men in Mary Shelley's time was a little different. Uh, the concept of masculinity itself, because the upper crust of England considered themselves so distinguished and elite and, and above the rest, uh, you had this phenomenon where the idea of manhood was not necessarily in bravery, although that was definitely, you know, a, a factor uh, in their ideals of manhood, but also sensitivity. Sensitivity was a big deal um, to these people, and this was like just pre-Victorian times. So you can sort of see how this develops later on, uh, but the concept that men um, could express their emotions, uh, whatever those might be, very boldly and, um, and assertively, even if they were emotions of sadness, of grief, or of love for another man. And this was never really like 
the whole concept of LBGTQIA identities was not cemented at this time. So it's not always clear whether when someone describes like a fellow poet that they adore and that they have great feelings for, it's not clear whether like that is a platonic friendship with them and they're just, they're just buddies or whether there's something more going on and they might be um, delving into some, some sort of, you know, their own bisexuality in that way. And we see this later on with Lord Byron because someone who came with them on the uh, vacation to Lake Geneva, Mary Shelley's vacation, was a doctor who possibly had a crush on Lord Byron. He was really, really into him and constantly trying to impress him and, like, doting on him. So you see this sort of dynamic of um, men in this time having looser lines around what love can mean um, to one another. But, of course, you're compounding this with a situation that, you know, men can express whatever they want, but women in this time, naturally, their role is childbearers, their role is house tenders. That's how they were thought of in Victorian society and uh, and pre-Victorian society. And they have this concept of a woman's, like, grace and beauty being a physical expression of her innermost, like, moral fiber, moral fortitude. And this comes out in the story immediately because we see um, Victor Frankenstein is described as being beautiful. And this is not beautiful in the sense that, like, oh, he's hot. Um, This is beautiful in the sense that there is a connection between his physical beauty, kind of like the Adonis type of thing, and the the moral beauty, like the moral fiber and character of of the of the person. So this was a thing that also came back in J.R.R. Tolkien's works, where he talked about the elves being noble and graceful and beautiful. But he didn't just mean that in terms of like their you know stupid sexy elves, but he meant that in the sense of they were um, they were beautiful on all levels, like outside physically reflected their beauty inside. Uh, so that that's a big concept right here in in this period, and we get into it immediately. So Walton is very taken with Frankenstein. He's very smitten with him, um, and he's constantly trying to find out why Frankenstein is up here in the Arctic, you know, running around with a dog sled, because he's a man of science. Um, he very quickly explains to him that he was he was once a scientist and, and lived in Switzerland. And Walton is just very confused as to why he might be up here, but a few days before the epistolary letters tell us, Walton's ship saw some sort of giant man uh, or man-shaped thing going across the ice on a similar dog sled. So something else is out here on the ice, and they don't know what it is. Um, so eventually he managed to pressure, manages to pressure Frankenstein into speaking, Victor Frankenstein, and this begins the bulk of the actual book. And Frankenstein is a book that's a story within a story, but then at some points we get a story within a story, and then sometimes we get a story within a story within a story. So it can be very confusing to try and, and keep up with the format that Mary Shelley is working with here, uh, but we'll just do it blow by blow. So Victor Frankenstein gets into his life um, and into his, his uh, youth as a young Switzer, uh, a young Swiss man uh, growing up in the Alps among his wonderful family and his uh, encouraging father. And, um, but right away, we run into this theme that comes back and back and back in Mary Shelley's Frankenstein is that his mother is dead. Um, his mother passed away. There's a very dramatic scene um, where, where she you know wishes them all well and passes away, probably in a way to sort of assuage Mary Shelley's own feelings that she never got to say goodbye to her mother because um, it's a big scene in the actual beginning of the book. So Victor Frankenstein's mother passes away. Um, he becomes a little more melancholy. He becomes a little darker. Uh, and already you can see Mary Shelley's personal experience is sort of bleeding in here. And eventually, um, he, he begins, we, we get suggestions very quickly that 
his cousin Elizabeth, and like I said, we're going to get gross here, that his cousin Elizabeth, who he's living with, he has a big crush on. So pretty gross to start. Gets extra gross. Uh, at this time, marrying your cousin was something that was kind of considered okay. Um, the sort of inbreeding uh, taboo was not entirely out there all the way, although I feel that at this time it must have at least been coming out that, like, you just can't keep inbreeding people. It just doesn't work. Like, it's just, it's not good for you. Uh, so the the crush that he has on Elizabeth is is painted very in very rose-colored goggles. Um, he, he says that she's the most beautiful creature on the face of the earth. He goes on and on and on about her, and his father is actually encouraging this uh, and sort of, like, shipping them a little bit and matchmaking them and basically is set up to have them marry when they're older. So, like, these young cousins are living together from being children, and they're just expected to grow up and marry and have a bunch of kids later on. So it's it's a little weird. It's a little gross. It may not be my favorite part of this book. Um, so we get over to... So we describe Frankenstein's youth and his weird crush on his cousin and his dad's desire to marry him to his cousin, and then finally we get away from that because uh, Frankenstein is, um, Victor is looking to study natural philosophy. So he goes, um, you know, he goes to the university, he goes to a, um, a very large university of that time, um, and this is all, this is all happens at Ingolstadt, uh, which is a, a, um, a location in Switzerland. And Mary Shelley seems to have done her homework here because there's a similar college, uh, I believe, in Ingolstadt or around it uh, that studied natural philosophy for some time. So she, she pulls a lot of details that would have seemed very realistic to her readers um, so that would make the book land uh, a little heavier than it otherwise would have. And uh, out here in, in the 21st century, we don't really catch those details because the those places have changed so much. Um, but she throws in a lot to really make it realistic and really make the book land, make it stick. So we uh, so with Victor's uh, career in college, it doesn't go well for him uh, because he was obsessed with he becomes obsessed with uh, alchemy, which is the ancient process of turning lead into gold, creating homunculi, which are little clay servants, like all this bullshit magic stuff. And his professors, when he discusses this with them are immediately just like, what the fuck are you doing? You're here to learn real science. Like, put that shit away. Um, but because he's an edgy teenager, and this is something that I feel also reflected off Mary Shelley, this sort of rebelliousness, because she was very much a goth. Like, the first time her and her husband, Percy Shelley, made love, allegedly, was in a graveyard. <laughs> so she's just the OG goth chick, um, most definitely. The thing with his alchemy books, uh, with Victor Frankenstein's alchemy books, is they are all, the, the names that are dropped are not relevant to us now, but at the time they were still kind of in vogue because they had just passed out of being officially taken as fact. Like science is beginning to take over, alchemy is disappearing, she's capturing this moment in history that we really are not familiar with and don't really care about right now. Uh, so the, he, being an edgy teenager, Victor determines to go against the grain and defy his professors and do alchemy anyway, um, but he mixes it with science, and this is where the sort of weird genius of the character comes in. Um, so Victor gets into what he's trying to find out through alchemy. He says, one of the phenomena which had peculiar, which had peculiarly attracted my attention was the structure of the human frame, and indeed, any animal endued with life. So Victor determines to create a living creature um, based on his studies of alchemy and homunculi and all this stuff and galvanism, of course, the lightning is, is involved almost immediately. Uh, Victor sees a 
tree splintered and destroyed by lightning, and this starts getting him wondering about the powers of electricity. He does research. He finds out about the experiments where they'll they make uh, animals dead animals twitch, and he thinks, well, wait a minute, I could I could do that. I could bring something back to life if I have the right combination of scientific materials. I can maybe bring something to life. I can create life. And this is the central arrogance and the central hubris of Victor Frankenstein, which is such a powerful theme that even in the sort of hammer horror ripoffs of, of Frankenstein, where the creature is sort of a boring, uh, dull zombie-like thing, like, you know, Boris Karloff wandering around and strangling people, uh, even then in those kind of hammy interpretations, the arrogance of Victor Frankenstein in creating life is still a very viscerally powerful theme, uh, going against God, going against nature, violating every law of, of the universe to do his own bidding, to, to exert his will in the world. That is the story of Victor Frankenstein, and that is the theme that continually returns, and we'll see it again and again and again. So Victor begins robbing graves, <laughs> and this may seem concerning to you, but in actuality, this was a very big thing at the time. Uh, grave robbing was at its height during Mary Shelley's time because doctors were constantly in need now that um, anatomy and uh, medicine had begun to achieve some level of legitimacy and it wasn't just quacks running around with like colored pastes and feeding people mercury. Um, scientists had some level of veracity in the things that they uh, the things that they did to cure people. And so they were constantly trying to find out more about the human body, constantly making discoveries. Um, bit by bit, people were unraveling the secrets of the human the human anatomy. Uh, the reality of that is that they needed corpses. And corpses in uh, Mary Shelley's time were procured by men called resurrectionists, or also like the very colorful <laughs> local um, terminology, I believe, is uh, sack and bag men, uh, where they are sack em up men. That's it. Uh, they were called sack em up men. Uh, and these were just lower class men who would go into graveyards with their assistants and just pull bodies out of coffins. Uh, they had special techniques for them. They would target the bodies of the poor because the poor could only afford pine box coffins. They would steal these fresh corpses like the night after the funeral, um, take them over to the doctor's office in whatever way they transported them in barrels, sometimes casks, sometimes pickled, sometimes not. And they would give them these corpses and the doctors would be like, thanks, don't need to ask any questions. Here's your money. Now uh, get, get out of here. And so the resurrectionists continued this for quite some time. Um, and they were they became almost uh, organized crime in their own right. They had different gangs who had different like uh, claims to different graveyards. It's it's all very colorful. Uh, once again, encourage you to read the biography, um, the lady and her monsters. It goes into it in great detail. Uh, but we don't have time for that here. So back to the story. Victor is putting together his creature, and it becomes apparent very quickly that his sort of obsession with it overrides maybe his ability to understand what he's actually doing. Um, he says, I examined and analyzed all the minutiae of causation as exemplified in the change from life to death and death to life until from the midst of this darkness a sudden light broke in upon me, a light so brilliant and wondrous yet so simple that while I became dizzy with the immensity of the prospect which it illustrated, I was surprised that among so many men of genius who had directed their inquiries toward the same science that I alone should be reserved to discover so astonishing a secret. So he's, he's describing the moment in which he realizes it is possible to create life, um, to artificially create life from spare parts, essentially to make a new creature, uh, a new species even, from the remains of another, um, which 
I mean, it's not that far from reality. At this point, uh, we had a recent story in the news, I want to say just um, a couple weeks or a month ago, um, and this is in 2019, uh, May of 2019. The We had a story in which scientists have discovered how to keep a pig's head alive after death by using essentially a false heart to pump blood into the pig's brain. Um, and, of course, they sedated it because they were kind of worried the brain might wake up. <laughs> so we, But there, there were signs of life in the brain, um, and this was immediately after the pig's head had been, been chopped off uh, and prepared for this procedure. So we're seeing some stuff now where, like, the, the artifices of Victor Frankenstein and sort of the fakery of, like, putting a body together from spare parts, that may not be viable, but there are other ways to do similar things, and people are getting deeper and deeper into it. So, you know, keep your, keep your ears open. There's, there's stuff going on. So Victor Frankenstein puts his creature together. Um, he has like some bumps in the road of the creation process, which I found really funny. Uh, he, well, darkly funny, I guess. There's nothing really funny about any of Frankenstein. It's a deeply grim story. Uh, so he is collecting body parts. Um, he dabbles among the unhallowed damps of the grave and tortures the living animal to animate the lifeless clay. And you could just see him with like, you know, with with uh, jumper cables like, trying to bring a corpse to life, like, live, live, like the big line from the movie where it's like, give my creation life. Um, but that's all kind of like suppressed in Mary Shelley's original version. He is more of a silent ghoul than a, than a raving, loud scientist. Um, he says that in the top of like this building that he's living in in Ingolstadt, I kept my workshop of filthy creation. My eyeballs were starting from their sockets and attending to the details of my employment. The dissecting room in the slaughterhouse furnished many of my materials, and often did my human nature turn with loathing for my occupation. Whilst still urged on by an eagerness which perpetually increased, I brought my work near to a conclusion. So he's losing his mind <laughs> creating this monster because um, at first it's a scientific thing but it's also bound up in his sense of personal self-importance right because victor is this very arrogant very young upstart scientist his whole life is poured into this the creation of this this creature and you see in this a weird shadow of mary's own creation of the book itself because she says she feels possessed uh, or she felt possessed while she was writing this, and that it was something beyond the normal bounds of inspiration or imagination that fueled her. Um, and she saw with perfect clarity, like these images of Victor leaning over his monster. Uh, and it's it's this just this moment where a, a sort of primal myth, um, like the the Prometheus myth, the uh, the myth of um, who is it? Uh, the myth of Pygmalion creating Galatea, his living statue in Greek excuse me, in Greek myth, we see this enormous, huge, towering story emerging from pretty much just the first attempt of, of a woman who had never written anything like this before in her life, but this her entire life's worth of pain and suffering and misery and fear and sadness and her dark reflections on the act of creation and how it is by in, inherently a violent act. A childbirth is a violent act by default. All of this is just poured into her manuscript and it's coming out uh, once we get past kind of the clunky initial first few chapters with the epistolary letter stuff we dive right into Victor's life and we dive into just the horror of the things that he's doing and I imagine her writing this like frenzied feverish and I imagine her having a really good time because <laughs> this is a really fun story I, I think to have written and, and to be in the middle of writing because it's this crazy, insane idea that, like, no one else had ever come up with. It was entirely original to Mary Shelley, and she's just pouring it out as fast as she can. So 
The creature itself, uh, for, uh, Victor creates, it's an enormous being. Um, I imagine it almost as like a, um, you know how they have the sensory homunculus where the hands and eyes and whatnot are disproportionate? I imagine it a little like that, but the descriptions of the creature are disturbing. They're deeply disturbing. I had a wonderful um, version a while back that had some wood cuttings uh, that were engraved of the creature's, um, the creature's body and face, and it was just distorted in a way that like doesn't match with any actual real diagnosed um, bodily deformity, but correct, um, but artists with enough talent can bring out this creature in a way that really makes your spine tingle. And that is what Mary Shelley is uh, is doing when she describes the creature. Um, Victor says, his limbs were in proportion and I had selected his features as beautiful, but then he realizes he's made some mistakes and he says, beautiful, great, God, his yellow skin scarcely covered the work of muscles and arteries beneath. His hair was of a lustrous black and flowing, his teeth of a pearly whiteness, but these luxuriances only formed a more horrid contrast with his watery eyes that seemed almost of the same color as the dun white sockets in which they were set, his shriveled complexion and straight black lips. So he's describing basically the zombie that he's building. And even Victor Frankenstein is disturbed by it, but he doesn't stop. He can't stop. He needs to finish the work. And this is something that I'm familiar with as a writer and as a content creator. When you really get a good idea going and you're really in the middle of it, you don't stop for anything. And Victor is very clear that he becomes very ill in the process of creating the creature, not just from robbing graves and stuff, uh, but from just driving himself, you know, straight forward through this creation process, kind of flying by the seat of his pants, clearly making shit up as he goes. Because keep in mind, Mary Shelley made some revisions later to change this, but originally Victor has no vision for what he's going to do with the creature when he creates it. He has no idea what the creature is for. He just wants to make it. He wants to be the one who made it. He wants to be the one who pioneers this. And so he throws himself into the creation of this creature with no real end goal. Uh, so he just, he's at the point of collapsing from insomnia and, and lack of nutrition by the time he's done with this creature. And, um, and he uses, of course, uh, galvanic energy to bring it to life. He uses uh, the energy of electricity, which Mary Shelley described in her later recollections on writing the novel. She says, I saw the creator hunched over the great engine and then slowly the body on the slab stirring to life. So this, this myth of the creature just Bam, just right there on the page. So Frankenstein finishes his creature, and immediately he begins to fall apart. Like, the creature stirs. It's clearly alive. It's breathing. Um, it hasn't moved yet. Uh, he's freaked out by it, of course, because he has no idea what he's done. Uh, he has no idea, like, what the actual result of his experiment is going to be. Uh, and he's borderline passing out from malnutrition and exhaustion, so he stumbles into a neighboring room and collapses. He faints. Um, and this is another sensitivity thing where the sensitivity of the character is employed very frequently to push the plot along. When Mary doesn't know what to do with Victor, she'll often just have him faint, and then the plot progresses. <laughs> so just, you know, keep that in mind as we go. So Victor uh, awakes, and the creature has gotten up and is, like, peering into his side room, like, trying to figure out what he is, because the creature doesn't have any... He built it out of, like, a, an adult, a series of adult human beings, but the creature, as far as... Victor in the story is concerned is a blank slate. It doesn't know what the world is. It doesn't know what Victor is. So he sees it like lurking in the doorway and it's its first like steps emerging from the slab. And Victor freaks the fuck out. <laughs> he 
just loses his mind. He says, a mummy endued with animation could not be so hideous as that wretch. I had gazed upon him while unfinished. He was ugly then, but when those muscles and joints were rendered capable of motion, it became a thing such as even Dante could not have conceived. So he's describing how the creature lands squarely in kind of the uncanny valley. Like, you know it's it looks human. It looks vaguely human, but something about it is off, right? Something about it is wrong. It reminds me of that, um, there was the old creepy pasta internet post from like 2001 uh, that did a resurgence a couple months back with the Momo thing. It's like a bird puppet. Um, it's a Japanese puppet that a, that a horror artist made, but it became viral again, this is the second time, um, like I, I'd say like a couple months ago, and just took over the internet, and everyone was posting it, freaking people out, and people were, but the reason that that was happening was because your primal sort of like subconscious lizard brain can tell when something looks like your species, but isn't quite there, which is the source of a lot of you know, a lot of horror creatures, um, uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde also does it with Mr. Hyde. No one can say what's wrong about him, but there's something wrong and they just don't like it. And so Victor runs out of the house, uh, flees into Ingolstadt and proceeds to just treat his entire creation process as something that he just brushes under the rug. He's like, oh, he, he, he runs off. He's, he's very sensitive. He's collapsing. He's very sick. His friend, uh, Henry Clerval comes to take care of him and is like, what's wrong with you? Are you okay? Um, it's this very active, sporty, athletic type of guy um, who is Victor Frankenstein's greatest friend, shows up and like basically nurses him back to health. But, and this is another case of Mary pushing the plot along, it takes a good like year or so, I think, for, for Victor to really come back from his apoplectic fit, from his collapse. Um, so he just... He had a total nervous breakdown over this creature, ran away, um, and is just a hot mess for about a year or so as Henry's bringing him back. And this is something where it would strain the bounds of believability for us as a modern audience, um, but it becomes much more understandable when you see that like the sensitivity of that time was a desirable trait. So technically by retiring and like not dealing with the problem, he's being a man? I don't know. Mary Shelley's views on this seem very all over the place, and I'm really interested to learn more about them. But after this, after all this has gone down, after Victor has fled from his creature and Henry has cared for him, he starts to, like, recover. And he starts to wonder, like, was it all a dream? Like, he won't go back to the laboratory. He won't go back to the... He keeps... He had his notes, um, which were in his coat, and he later finds those are gone, and those will come back, so don't worry about that. Uh, but he essentially... He goes back to... He goes home. And this is where the story starts to do a weird thing where there are two timelines happening here. One is with the creature off doing its own thing, which Victor doesn't seem to care about. Like, he, all he cares is that the creature is gone from the house, right? He checks the house, the creature's gone. He's like, all right, it must have wandered off and died. Like, there's no way it could just go and live on its own. Um, it, it's probably dead, maybe. <laughs> but, like, he doesn't know, and he doesn't spend a lot of time thinking about it. It's almost as if this horrible, shameful deed that he did, this defying of God and defying of nature, he wants nothing more than to just get rid of it, just to throw it, throw it away and be done with it. Ever since the fatal night, the end of my labors and the beginning of my misfortunes, I had conceived a violent antipathy even to the name of natural philosophy. When I was otherwise quite restored to health, the sight of a chemical instrument would renew all the agony of my nervous symptoms. That's just another little uh, audiobook clip for you. Uh, so moving on, uh, Victor returns home uh, to his ancestral house, the, uh, the House of Frankenstein. 
which is apparently a real place. There is a real family, uh, or was a real family at that time in Switzerland called the Frankensteins, but no one's ever been able to confirm whether Mary knew about them or just came up with the name on the spot. So Victor returns to the, uh, the Casa de Frankenstein, and he immediately finds out, um, he was actually sent a letter uh, while he's in Ingolstadt after the creation of the creature saying that his, uh, his younger brother, his little little brother, has, um, has perished. Uh, and we're not sure uh, whether this is something that, that came like while he was unconscious or what. Uh, so Victor goes home and he finds his family just deeply in mourning, uh, grieving for the loss of the youngest in their family. Uh, the young, the Frankenstein Jr., uh, effectively, and they realize that things are, are in motion very quickly. Elizabeth and uh, Victor reunite. They have their weird, creepy crush going on, uh, but they're, they're, uh, Elizabeth's servant, Justine, is taking the rap for the murder, so they have to deal with that. So uh, Victor returns to the ancestral family home of the Frankensteins. Uh, his, his younger brother has been murdered, uh, they are pinning the murder on a girl named Justine, who's a, a chambermaid or a servant girl for the Frankenstein house. Um, an artifact, a, a locket of some sort or something that the little boy owned was on her person around the time of the murder, so she looks like the prime suspect. Uh, but of course, Frankenstein, Victor Frankenstein, Victor suspects otherwise. So Victor begins to feel like somehow this, this creature that he created has returned and it is plaguing him. And we don't really get a whole lot of evidence for this, but eventually, after the process of Justine's trial is over, and of course she's pronounced guilty because Victor can't tell them that, oh, by the way, a creature I made might have murdered my little brother. You know, it's not not an easy thing to do. Um, and consistently, Victor does not go to any kind of authorities to deal with his suspicions about his runaway creature. Like, he never reports, you know, to the Ingolstadt police that he released a... Uh, uh, a, a thinking, living, sentient being onto the streets of Ingolstadt, and he certainly never tells his family, uh, at least at first. So that's um, not 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 the biggest point in his corner. So Victor goes in search of his creature. Um, he sighted it in the uh, in the Alps, in the mountains around his ancestral family home. So he goes looking for it, and this is actually one of the passages I like the most um, because this is the passage in which we find out that the creature can speak. And for those of you who have only seen like the movie version or what have you, um, that is something that came as a complete surprise to me when I first read the book from end to end. Uh, and I was just delighted because the creature, I mean, eventually he gets so much dialogue that you kind of wish maybe he would shut up, <laughs> but the creature gets some of the best lines in the entire story. Uh, he gets some of the best dialogue. He gets, he gets some of the best argument positions to take. Uh, a lot of the conversations between Victor and his creature are done in the form of kind of philosophical debates, almost. Uh, so Victor finds his creature amongst the glaciers of the Alps, and uh, right away we find out that the creature is not a mindless killing machine, although it immediately admits that it did kill his little brother, <laughs> so not, uh, not hiding that. Uh, but up until now, we've kind of had a Jaws view of the creature because like it hasn't showed up um, just right in front of us. Uh, but when the creature does arrive, he definitely steals the scene. Uh, Victor is collapsing uh, under Mont Blanc. He's collapsing in the forest, just being very dramatic. Uh, Mary Shelley and her characters are all very dramatic. The time period was that uh, romanticism was at its height. So we kind of got a lot of high drama, which maybe at some points might ring as unrealistic to readers um, looking back now. Uh, but it serves the purpose of the story. Uh, so... 
Victor says he suddenly beheld the figure of a man at some distance advancing towards me with superhuman speed. He bounded over the crevices in the ice among which I had walked with caution. His stature as he approached seemed to exceed that of a man. And uh, finally, the, the, the monster gets close to him. Victor um, narrates that his countenance bespoke bitter anguish combined with disdain and malignity, while his unearthly ugliness rendered him almost too horrible for human eyes. Uh, so Victor's monster is truly hideous on every level because uh, he took, just sort of built it from spare parts, uh, and it's got the it's got the uncanny valley happening. Um, so he he basically he bitches out the monster. He he tries to um, chase it down, uh, but Frankenstein's creature is um, not. We we find out very quickly that Frankenstein's creature is very hard to kill, <laughs> like either by accident or by design. Um, Victor created his creature more more powerful than humans, as stronger than humans and faster. So already we have that kind of eerie note of like AI, like what have we created here? What 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 can it do? Victor doesn't even know what it can do. And the creature is happy to remind him of that because he's been such an irresponsible creator. Um, and in the first scene in which you kind of expect them to, to fight, Victor's looking to try and kill this thing because he knows for a fact uh, that it must have been out there lurking in the darkness. Uh, the creature instead debates him, and we get a lot of these scenes. Um, the creature leads him back to its its hut where it's living in the Alps. Apparently cold doesn't bother it, which will come, come up again later. Uh, and um, the creature offers to tell Victor his story. And this is where we get, like I said before, the story within a story within a story, which can get a little tedious and can get a little complicated. So let's summarize the creature's story as efficiently as we can without losing the quality of the, of, the, uh, of the narrative. So the creature narrates his story just from the very beginning of his creation. He says he doesn't remember much from uh, the period where he was uh, originally awoke on the slab, uh, but he does remember sort of coming to himself in the forest outside of Ingolstadt. And then we get kind of a really, really impressive um, montage of the creature learning what it's like to be alive, uh, like learning what the sun is like and learning that night is a thing <laughs> that happens. And um, he finds an old campfire that's been left behind by some, some beggars. Uh, he learns that fire hurts him, which is carried over into the, uh, the Boris Karloff movie version, uh, almost as like a bigger personality feature of the creature than anything else, that it, it fears fire. Uh, and that never really comes back here. <laughs> There's never really a point at which Victor uses fire to defeat the creature or anything, um, but it's more of a weird... It's almost as if the creature is a, a, an adult-sized infant and, or a toddler, and it's learning how to interact with the world around it. Um, at this point in the creature's story, it doesn't know how to speak. Uh, it can't speak English. He, Victor didn't create it with a full set of language tools, um, so it's just kind of wandering through the woods. It gets hungry, eats some berries and eventually arrives near a cottage which is occupied by two young folk two young people and an old french man and this is where the story kind of gets into tragic territory like there was a great adaptation of this story that was done i want to say in london um with benedict cumberbatch and a couple of other actors they switched off the role of the creature uh so that was that was a really impressive um Really impressive play. If you, if you can find it on YouTube, I highly recommend it. It's uh, 2011's Frankenstein, I believe. It's the um, 
the original Nick Deere adaptation. It was at the Royal National Theater. So we have it encounter these cottagers uh, in the forest, and very quickly the creature becomes attached to them because these are the first humans the creature has seen that haven't run away from it. Uh, it's, it's run into a couple farmers by now, but of course the farmer sees this hulking zombie appear from the woods and just, you know, runs out of there. So uh, the creature uh, learns from the humans in the cottage because by now it's learned to hide, and it sort of learns language and it learns the functions of, of social niceties from these cottagers. And this is a very, very long segment that maybe doesn't need to be this long. It's, it's more about Mary Shelley exploring each and every one of these individual side characters, which can become a little overbearing. She really is dedicated to making this story seem real. She has a whole backstory for each of these characters, which she happily dumps into the narrative uh, using the creature's exposition. She has all sorts of different things that she sort of crams in very quickly. There's a backstory where the old Frenchman has escaped from France. Um, there's a young Arabian woman who shows up who's the beloved of the young man who's living at the house. And there's a whole love triangle there. She's kind of just doing her own little romanticism story inside of the Gothic, which is, I guess, fun. But of course, it's not meant to last because the creature... Finally, after many, many months, um, almost a year of, of living in the woods and sort of helping the cottagers out like it's a weird sort of um, fairy of some sort, uh, they don't know where the, the chopped wood comes from that the creature brings them, uh, but eventually the, uh, all of the young people are out of the house um, and the old man is blind. So the creature enters the house and tries to befriend the old man, but the young people, um, the, the man's uh, son and daughter uh, and the Arabian girl come back during this time, and of course, the old man can't see the monster, so all he can hear is its voice. He doesn't realize how hideous he is. Um, but the others come back and immediately start attacking it because <laughs> they think that it's about it's it's some sort of creature trying to um, you know kill their their grandfather or their father, some sort of monster trying to uh, trying to attack their their home. So they drive it out of the uh, out of the cottage. Um, there's a lot of scenes in which the monster, quote unquote, quits an abode uh, in very dramatic fashion. But I always, for some reason, imagine because the monster doesn't really seem to understand like windows or doors. I always imagine him cool aiding through the wall, just like smashing through it and leaving behind like a Bugs Bunny outline. But that's just my personal <laughs> personal head cannon. Um, he's just ah and just gets out of there. So those people that he loved and cared about have rejected him, and this is where we get the first of the monster's instinctual desire for revenge. And very quickly, the monster concocts a plan um, and manages to, uh, to start gathering kindling to burn down the house. Meanwhile, the people, luckily, are leaving the house because they're so terrified of what they saw. They never want to be in this place again. Uh, the monster's hideousness has almost a supernatural aspect to it. Like, there are points at which people can sort of overcome a little bit of his ugliness to communicate with him. But then um, there's actually a really good scene in the 2011 play between Elizabeth, um, Frankenstein's cousin, and the monster. And they have almost a conversation where she, you know, sees the creature as hideous, but begins to have almost a rapport with him. But that doesn't go well either, and we'll see why that is. So the monster uh, burns down the cottage after the cottagers have left. Um, he gets his little moment where he decides that he's going to be the enemy of mankind rather than their friend, because um, mankind has shown him nothing but cruelty. It doesn't really seem to take much <laughs> for the monster to fly off the rails. Uh, his temper is legendary um, in both this version of the story and in later versions. Um, and there is something almost compulsive about his childlike anger, because uh, he has all of the egotism of like a child, but all of the dangerous 
uh, bodily abilities of a superhuman uh, cobbled together freak of nature. Uh, so he burns down the cottage and he leaves and he begins traveling towards Frankenstein's abode because he's discovered that the coat he stole from Frankenstein's lab back when he was created for warmth, um, he stole the coat. It had all of the creation notes in it. It had all of Victor's notes on how, how the creature was created. So now the creature knows how it was created, um, which doesn't make it very happy. And it uh, it leaves the cottage and it travels to the, uh, the house of Frankenstein uh, in Switzerland. And the, uh, the, the carnage begins almost immediately. Um, the creature is sort of lurking outside of the, uh, of the mansion in the woods, living in a cave. And a little boy happens along, um, just playing in the woods. And the creature, like, encounters the little boy, and the little boy freaks out, you know, thinking it's a fairy tale ogre. And the, the creature, at, at first, um, the creature tries to, like, abduct the kid to be his friend. He's like, I need a friend. No one will be my friend. Won't you be my friend? Um, but then the little kid um, is is sort of kicking and struggling and, and mentions that his father is um, is a Frankenstein and, and knows like many, many famous people around town and will come and get him. So the creature, hearing the name Frankenstein and being a little caught up in its own frustrations, um, kills the child. And this is the point where like the creature is sort of passing beyond how much we can sympathize with him because he's got this horrific, horrific rage that happens every very periodically throughout the story. Um, and every time that the creature kills someone, uh, it seems to feel some sort of regret, uh, some sort of um, remorse. But we don't really buy it, because if the creature really regretted it that much, it might try a little harder to not, you know, murder everyone in its path. So the little boy's dead. Um, the creature, having learned uh, what it refers to as the art of deception uh, from the cottagers, the concept of a lie, uh, it goes and plants a little locket from the boy's body on um, the on the uh, the clothes of Justine while she's sleeping, and she becomes she gets the murder pinned on her, and she gets she gets hung. I believe she gets executed. So that's not great. Um, so the creature wraps up its story in the little hut in the mountains where Victor is sitting with it and asks Victor, you know, maybe my life wouldn't be so miserable if you would make me a mate, if you'd make me another creature to live with, I could be happy. And Victor, of course, is not really about that whole life because he's trying to leave his alchemy days behind him and he's disgusted with the thing he's made. He's he's revolted by it. So he does try and attack and kill it, um, but the creature gets away again. I imagine it busting out of the, the hut. <laughs> you know, it's just, it doesn't really have a lot of subtlety. Um, and Victor is left with its, with its request. Um, so eventually... Eventually, Victor comes around and realizes that the creature, which is seems to be functionally immortal, like we never really establish how it can be killed. Um, at one point, a farmer, uh, in, in its flashback narrative, shoots the creature with buckshot, and um, after a couple days, he's just he's fine. Uh, he feels pain. He knows what pain is, uh, but he doesn't seem to be phased by gunshots very much, or like physical blows, or cold, or heat, or hunger. All these things don't seem to impact him as much as it would us as regular humans. So Victor eventually agrees to make a bride for the creature. And this is where the whole Bride of Frankenstein thing comes from. Um, even though Frankenstein is the creator's name and not the monster's name, which everybody gets wrong and, you know, it's a, it's a whole thing. Uh, so Victor decides to, obviously he needs to do this in a secluded place, right? He can't, 
Uh, he can't just build another monster in the middle of Switzerland. So he decides to go on a quote-unquote vacation, but he promises Elizabeth that when he comes back, he'll marry her, which makes his father happy, despite the recent murder in the family. Uh, so the, they, they allow him to just go and do his thing. And he goes on this trip, this vacation, with Henry Clerval, his best friend from before, who nursed him back to health. And Henry Clerval is kind of like the idealized romantic, um, in terms of the, the literary genre, he's a romantic ideal. Uh, he's a very noble and beautiful creature, and he has many ambitions and plans. And we actually find out very quickly um, that Henry Clerval is a colonialist. <laughs> he's got big dreams for like making some sort of plantation in the Americas. So we're not really inclined to sympathize with him either. In fact, as soon as I found that out, I was like, oh, he seemed like kind of a bro before, but now he just seems like kind of an oblivious piece of shit. Um, so Victor and Henry travel up. Uh, we have a kind of a weird road trip sequence in which they travel up out through Switzerland, up through England, and finally to, uh, to Scotland, uh, up that way. And uh, Victor finds a secluded uh, island where he can work on the new creature, and uh, Henry leaves him behind and goes and does his own thing in, in England. And Victor becomes the, sort of this fixture of the local um, local folklore because he's just a mad scientist who just showed up with a bunch of shit, set up a cottage on an island, and now he's doing weird shit with electricity there all hours of the night. It reminds me strongly of Nikola Tesla. Um, during his later years, he moved out to, I think it was Colorado or somewhere, and he had a barn that he had full of like giant Tesla coils and shit, doing experiments, experimenting with wireless communication. And people would say that it would just light up the night for miles around because he would just be popping off electricity all hours of the night. Uh, so it's um, it's a similar thing to that. Uh, Victor is putting his second creature together, and now he doesn't have like the, the insane inspiration of the first creature, of creating the first creature, has worn off. So now he sees his grisly work for exactly what it is. It makes him sick. Uh, but he loots more graves, he finds more fresh body parts, like the, uh, like the resurrectionists of London once did. He finds more corpse chunks to sew together. Um, he starts building his galvanic engines to bring the, the, the thing to life. It's all very grim and very sad, because like at this point, his love of science has kind of disappeared, and he's sort of this broken man, because uh, he knows if he doesn't satisfy the creature's whims, it will you know destroy his whole family. And once again, Victor decides not to go to the cops <laughs> to, to report this creature blackmailing him. Uh, he just proceeds with the project, uh, such as it is, rowing back and forth from his little island. And uh, eventually he's got the second creature almost complete. And then he realizes that this, there's a problem here. He realizes there's a problem because the second creature will also have free will. He doesn't seem to have mastered the ability to take away free will from his creations, so he knows that if he follows the original recipe, uh, makes Creature 2.0, Creature 2.0 might decide it doesn't like Creature 1.0, and then either they might fight, or they might, um, you know, they might uh, range through the earth destroying things. He doesn't know what they're going to do, or how they're going to react, or how any of it's going to turn out, and he decides that the risk is too great, and so one night on a, of course, a dark and stormy night, because it's a gothic, and there are going to be dark and stormy nights, that's where this came from, uh, he destroys his second creation, and the uh, the creature shows up immediately, and, and is like, what the hell are you doing, um, the creature is furious, and Victor explains his rationale to the creature, and the creature sort of, um, this is the point at which I think it passes beyond any, any semblance of reasonableness, and becomes just, um, just a murder machine, uh, because the creature has this has this sense that Frankenstein is um, 
is tormenting him on purpose. And so, based on that self-justification, he says, You have destroyed the work which you began. What is it that you intend? Do you dare to break your promise? I have endured toil and misery. I left Switzerland with you. And he describes his own little road trip. I'm not sure how the creature got to England. I guess he swam the English Channel, which is, okay, impressive. Uh, He says, I have endured incalculable fatigue and cold and hunger. Do you dare destroy my hopes? And then this is probably one of the most interesting interesting lines in the whole book. This is probably one of the most interesting lines that I've seen. The creature, um, Victor sort of shoots back at him and says, no, fuck off, I'm not making another creature. And the monster calls him slave, which is really interesting, like on a lot of levels, because there's no real reason for that to be in the story unless Mary Shelley was deliberately taking the situation and turning it around where the creature is now the master and Victor is the slave. And his position of privilege, which we talked about before, Victor's privilege has kind of protected him from a lot of rough stuff in the world. His privilege is then stripped away, and he's now the subject of this creature. Um, And that is really interesting to me because the, the relationship between master and creature and creature and master is kind of wibbly throughout this entire story, but now it becomes a straight-up thing where Victor is now a subject of this creature's insane, you know, desires. So that's a a weird thing that crops up, um, and he gives up. The creature does a long monologue where he talks about how he's going to, you know, destroy Victor's life, and uh, Victor, being Victor, tries to hit him with a stick, (laughs) and the, the creature just bounces out of the house and dives into the ocean and disappears. Um, so Victor's now hitting another spot where his nerves are frazzled and his delicate constitution is starting to collapse again because uh, this is not easy work. This is just brutal, brutal work. Uh, he takes the... And this is actually also the grossest part of the story because before we didn't really get the exact details of like the body parts that he was, he was picking up in the f- creation of the first creature, but now in the creation of the second creature... We get this. Um, we get this hideous visceral description where um, he says, "I summon sufficient courage and unlock the door of my laboratory. The remains of the half-finished creature uh, lay inside, which I had destroyed. It was scattered on the floor, and I almost felt as if I had mangled the living flesh of a human being." Um, so he's just describing chunks of gore all around the room. Is what's being described here. And it's, it's super gross. And he takes all the chunks of the female creature, puts them in a basket, and fills it with rocks and throws it into the ocean. <laughs> so that whole project is now over. Um, the twist comes when he tries to return to the mainland, and because he's a scientist and not a sailor, he fucks it up um, and ends up sort of getting tossed around by a storm, and he drifts onto the coast of Ireland. Uh, and there's a weird segment where a lot of um, the local peasants surround him and are just giving him the stink eye, and like he doesn't know what it's about, but he very quickly learns there was recently a murder in the area. How about that? And they're pinning the murder on him. So the creature is now sort of leaving corpses behind it and then and then pinning the um, the murderous activity on Victor, which is really, it's just terrifying. Any good story has a good antagonist, and the creature is a relentless antagonist once it's angered, and we, we see that sort of carrying the entire structure of the plot. So we learn after Victor is taken to jail and locked up and his dad comes to bail him out because, once again, privilege, uh, he he sits in jail and he learns that his it's his friend Henry Clerval who's been killed, and they describe it as strangulation, but I kind of feel like the creature snaps the necks of its victims because it's this superpowered thing. Because um, they describe the bodies and they're like, we've never seen anyone strangled like that before. And it's kind of implying that the creature really fucked them up. So 
The creature's committed another murder. Victor is stuck in jail. His dad finally comes and bails him out. Uh, Victor tries to confess to his dad about the, the monster, but his, his father's not hearing it. And finally, after many, many deaths, <laughs> we finally have a scene at long, long last uh, where Victor ends up going to the cops, but only after he comes home, marries his cousin, Elizabeth, who is immediately, there's a term, I might have mentioned it before um, in, in the pod, where there's a term called uh, fridging a character, which refers to an awful, awful Green Lantern comic book plot from the 1990s where a female character is killed off for drama. Guess what? That happens a lot in, uh, in, in stories this old because, you know, if you want a tragedy, the fastest and easiest way to kill is, is to kill a loved one, and the female characters this time didn't really have a lot of agency, even in the hands of Mary Shelley, so... Victor marries Elizabeth. That very night, he's sort of sitting outside the uh, the bedroom with a gun, <laughs> like, waiting for the creature. He's, like, camping out. Um, but the creature sneaks through the window and strangles Elizabeth, and she is also dead. So we're just... People are dropping left and right. It's it's a massacre in here, and the creature is, um, you know, basically immune to bullets, uh, very fast, very hard to kill. So Victor's kind of at a loss at how he can stop this thing. Um, so he, he has his whole dramatic moment was it with Elizabeth dying like he was she was the light of his life and so on I was like well if she's the light of your life then why did you endanger her by pissing off this creature uh, but he was thinking of the good of mankind uh, it's the 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 scale of the story has already expanded um to say that Victor has saved mankind possibly by not creating a second creature because what if they bred apparently he can't make them sterile uh, so Victor um, is accidentally sort of the savior of humanity. So Elizabeth is kind of just a casualty in this war now. It's it's a really like the the scale of the story expands so quickly that it's almost hard to catch. Um, but you realize that Mary Shelley has woven like a possible alternate ending to this story where if she, if he did make a second creature, it would be like a creature versus human war. <laughs> so you you see the size of of what she's trying to convey here. Uh, so Victor finally, finally, finally finally goes to the cops. And this is kind of a sad scene because he goes to a local magistrate and he confesses the entire process of the creation of the creature. And this is the point at which, like, at first he seems crazy, but he's finally managed to sort of get his shit together and sort of man up a little bit as the, you know, as the the saying goes. Uh, he, he sort of found his guts a little bit. And Victor talks to the magistrate, explains every detail of the creature's creation, explains every detail of what's happened, and the magistrate still thinks he's kind of crazy, but is also like, even if this creature did exist, how do you expect us to stop it <laughs> if it's basically immune to gunfire and, um, and, and superhumanly fast and strong? What are we supposed to do about it? And Victor realizes like, oh, that, that's, that's a pretty good point. Uh, so he is left behind by the cops because they're not interested in his, his crazy story. Um, so he's finally tried going to the authorities, but it's it's now too late. It's we we've passed that point now. This is now Victor's destiny. He needs to be uh, he needs to take care of this himself. Um, and finally, we see him accepting some level of responsibility. And this is kind of like the the arc of his character resolving. Uh, he's become this this relentless force of revenge towards the creature. And the creature, of course, its sole existence now is to mock and um, and basically troll him <laughs> at range. Uh, so the creature flees north, and Frankenstein, Victor Frankenstein, pursues the creature north. And uh, it is it is truly sad how they explain it, because Victor is a human. He, he can only go so far. He can only, you know, 
endure this relentless travel and relentless hunting for a certain amount of time. But the creature has no such limits, and so it's slowly whittling, whittling him down as he chases it through England and through Scotland and through all these different countries. And finally, it, um, it goes north, stealing aboard a ship to go to the Arctic and disembarks in the Arctic, and, and Victor is compelled to follow it. Uh, so he goes and goes and goes, and slowly Victor runs out of steam and begins basically dying. Uh, he's dying of exhaustion, and he uh, arrives in the Arctic, and then we finally get back to... Uh, the original narrator of the story, uh, who was sending these epistolary letters uh, to his um, to Miss Savile, uh, Walton is sending these letters to Miss Savile, and we finally snap back to his perspective, and he says he, he explains how he explains how Victor is you know finally just sinking into himself from exhaustion and eventually dies from exhaustion, and then because Mary is an excellent storyteller and wants to add one last little stinger to the story, um, we actually have Walton encounter the creature. Victor dies. He finally admits that he has failed. And Frankenstein's final quote is very interesting to me because he says, Seek happiness and tranquility and avoid ambition, even if it be only the apparently innocent one of distinguishing yourself in science and discoveries. So, and, and he even adds um, a little stinger of his own, uh, Victor says, yet why do I say this? I have myself been blasted in these hopes, yet another may succeed. So he's admitting that there could be other scientists who could create additional creatures, like it's still a process that could, could happen again. Um, kind of the beware sort of <laughs> final, final monologue there. Um, but at last, the creature shows up inside of, um, of Walton's ship, and Walton is obviously deeply disturbed, um, he finds the creature crouching over Frankenstein's body. Uh, he says the creature's face was concealed by long locks of ragged hair, but one vast hand was extended in color and texture like that of a mummy. Never did I behold a vision so horrible as his face, of such loathsome yet appalling hideousness. I shut my eyes involuntarily. So, Frankenstein has kind of tasked um, this poor guy with <laughs> destroying the monster since he couldn't do it. Um, but the monster, as always, has something to say. Uh, he uses reason to explain to, uh, to Walton how he has suffered as well. But Walton, for, for the first time, finally, we see someone not buying this act. Because at this point, we understand the creature is irredeemable. Walton says, uh, You throw a torch into a pile of buildings, and when they are consumed, you sit among the ruins and lament the fall hypocritical fiend. So he's telling it that its immature, almost childish approach to humanity towards being human is just basically a temper tantrum. And he does not believe the creature that it has any redeeming qualities or, or, or tendencies. Um, and the creature debates him. There's a lot of weird spiritual debates here, which I really like, even though they don't always come at the right times. Uh, the creature says, am I thought to the only, be the only criminal when all humankind has sinned against me? Uh, why do you not hate the cottagers who drove me from the door? Why do you not execrate the rustic who sought to destroy the savior of his child? Because, of course, there was also that famous scene um, where uh, the monster rescues a child from a river, and that's how he gets shot. Uh, so he's got no interest in supporting humanity. Um, he's even mastered sarcasm. <laughs> he says, Nay, these are virtuous and immaculate beings. I, the miserable and the abandoned, am an abortion to be spurned at and kicked and trampled on. The use of the phrase abortion there, I think, is very significant. 
because the the story of creation that Mary Shelley is describing, because she's gone through childbirth at this point in her life, and she's lost children, and she's lost her mother, so she has all these pent up feelings of um, of of separation and loss that are sort of emerging onto the paper, and it could never th- these themes could never have worked as well in a male writer's hands because Mary Shelley has that unique perspective of being a woman in 1820 and, and experiencing the, the awfulness of that. And this plays into her story. And this is, what I believe, one of the reasons why the story is so long-lasting because she directly transfers her trauma and her experiences into the lives of, cre- of the creature and into the lives of Victor and the creature. So we see that sort of expressed here um, by the creature's constant torment merely just by existing. So... Finally, the creature announces its its desire to destroy itself, um, which sort of wraps up the story a little bit. Uh, soon I shall die, and what I now feel be no longer felt. Soon these burning miseries will be extinct. I shall ascend my funeral pile triumphantly and exult in the agony of the torturing flames. My spirit will sleep in peace, or if it thinks, it will not surely think thus, like the way it currently thinks, constantly in pain. Farewell. And of course... He Kool-Aid's out the window again, and that, I believe, is the end of the story. So that is Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. It's a really bizarre story, even for its time. Like, even for for that time, it was truly ahead of its time. And I say it remains that way today. The themes are powerful enough that they've carried through to the modern times. And the more we find out about Mary Shelley, uh, the more we learn that she really considered, like, a lot of the angles of the story in, in ways we might not have thought um, and she did revise it later on, sort of giving Victor a more helpless role, which I don't really buy, but I think that was her personal experiences trying to inform that because she'd had a rough life, which we will cover next time. Um, so that's Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Hope you learned a few things. Um, as for why the book's taught wrong, I mean, pretty much everything about it is taught wrong. I don't see the creature talking in a lot of the uh, adaptations, and mostly the creature has just been relegated to this sort of schlocky hammer horror monster like a few years back universal tried to create a dark universe with all of the original like 1800s monsters and it's ridiculous but um frankenstein's monster was one of those and uh the reason why it doesn't work is like this hammer horror thing is because the themes are too big for that like i love a good schlocky horror as much as anybody else but the creature's themes and its its experiences are too large to be contained by like Frank and Weenie cereal or whatever, you know, knockoff, spinoff things have come out of the uh, the creature's existence. Um, but that's the book. A uh, couple quick shout-outs real quick before I go. Um, thanks to everyone for listening. I hope you pop a good review on um, iTunes or wherever it is that you listen, Stitcher, uh, Podbean, uh, Pocket Cast, whatever. Uh, you can find me on Instagram um, under Boston, at Boston Space Jockey. I'm just posting about creepy things there as well. Uh, and finally, I do have a new book that I just put out. Uh, very excited about it. It's called Creatureland. And there are similar, I wouldn't say similar themes because it's not a retelling of Frankenstein, but there are themes of um, master and creature and there are themes of control and themes of, um, of, of what you've created sort of escaping your grasp. So if you're into that kind of stuff and you're into kind of a slow burn story where a sort of happy, almost anime style world is slowly corrupted into a miserable hellscape, um, yeah, check it out. It's on Amazon. Uh, again, that's Creature Land, spelled creature different because, you know, for the purposes of the story, it's C-R-E-E-C-H-E-R, uh, Creature Land. And you can just also look me up on Amazon, Paul C.K. Spears. 
Um, that's all I've got for you today. Uh, tune in next time for Mary Shelley's Life, which is a story all of its own. And then I promise you we will move on from Frankenstein. Uh, but it does deserve its own episode because it is uh, truly bizarre. Uh, so we'll see you next time.